This episode of Untold Killing contains descriptions of violence and mature themes. Please listen with discretion. How did their attack begin on the 6th of July? Uh, it began as every one of their attacks began. It began with heavy and indiscriminate shelling of the town. And dozens of people were wounded and killed in, in those five days. This is Amir again the charming director of Srebrenica Memorial Center, who you heard in episode one. In the early morning hours on Thursday, 6th of July, 1995, the army of Republika Srpska, the Bosnian Serb forces, began a heavy attack on the UN-protected Srebrenica enclave. Artillery shells began raining down over the town. For a year, Srebrenica had been under siege. Now, it was under attack. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. By this point, in July 1995, the Bosnian war had been going on for over three years, and it appeared to be winding down. The war was certainly coming to an end. Um, the Americans were getting in. With international powers for the first time becoming seriously involved in the war, it seems strange that Republika Srpska, the Bosnian Serb breakaway state, with its president Radovan Karadzic at the helm, would choose to escalate in Srebrenica by attacking it. And what I believed was that Karadzic wanted to end the war, but he also wanted to preempt the possibility where Bosniak population would remain in any size in eastern Bosnia in the Drina River Valley. If you remember, Drina River Valley is an area in eastern Bosnia which runs right alongside the Serbian border and where a lot of Bosniak-held towns were still standing undefeated by the Bosnian Serb army, among them Srebrenica. So what Emir is saying is that Republika Srpska wanted to claim as much of that region as possible before the end of the war, to have more negotiating power once the inevitable peace talks arrived. And the first step in the process was physically separating the enclaves of Zepa and Srebrenica from one another. Zepa, by the way, was another protected enclave like Srebrenica in the Drina Valley. The safe areas around the towns were actually pretty much connected. There was still a sort of a small hole in the, in the lines around the enclave that people used from Srebrenica to go to Zepa and get food, because there was no food in Srebrenica whereas Zepa had a smaller population that was easier to supply and so on. And in March 1995, Karadzic issued this Directive Number 7, which screams with genocidal intent, uh, and which literally reads that the life for Muslims in Eastern Bosnia should be impo made impossible. The precise wording of this declaration of Republika Srpska's intent is that they would, quote, complete the physical separation of Srebrenica from Zepa as soon as possible, preventing even communication between individuals in the two enclaves. By planned and well-thought-out combat operations, create an unbearable situation of total insecurity with no hope of further survival or life for the inhabitants of Srebrenica. 
These were the reasons that Republika Srpska attacked Srebrenica on the 6th of July, 1995. It also probably had to do with the fact that that was the only place where Bosnian-Serb military could win at that time. They had been losing. But the Muslims living there, they knew none of this. Here is Kada, the woman who'd lived in Srebrenica her entire life. On the 6th and 7th, when the shelling started, we were in unimaginable fear. I remember a grenade being thrown and an unbearable blistering noise and everything shattering. The sky was being torn up. It felt like the end of the world. For the people in Srebrenica, we never knew that this was being arranged without us ever knowing. And here is Yasmin again. He was a small child living in Srebrenica during all of this. It started very early in the morning. So we were woken up by a rumble in a distance. It was, uh, the sound of shells was not coming through air, it was coming through the ground. It felt like the ground was uh, trembling. There had been attacks on the town before, but this was different. Mainly because this time, the Bosnian Serbs were not attacking just the Bosniaks. They also moved against the UN. So while the town was being shelled early in the morning, thousands of Bosnian Serb soldiers surrounded the UN's positions around the enclave. But knowing about the UN soldiers don't shoot unless shot at mandate, they never directly attacked them. Now, in charge of the few hundred Dutch UN soldiers in Srebrenica was Colonel Tom Karamans. Karamans was a career soldier. He's tall, skinny and has a thick moustache that is as pristinely white as his hair. So, on the 6th, when the attack started, knowing that his soldiers can't engage with the Bosnian Serbs, he requests air support from his superiors. Essentially, planes would drop bombs on Bosnian Serb artillery positions to hinder the attack on Srebrenica. But because UN soldiers were not directly under threat, his request was rejected. While the attack was distressing for the people in Srebrenica, Colonel Karamans wrote in his diary that he thought the attack was only meant to intimidate the Bosniaks and the soldiers. This would certainly be in line with that Directive 7 I mentioned before, making life unbearable for the Muslims and pushing back UN positions to reduce the size of the protected area. And back in the town, the plan was working. People were panicking. Here is Kadifer, the young mother who gave birth just days before fleeing to Srebrenica. We hoped that they would bomb the Serb positions so that the Serbs would not slaughter innocent, unarmed people. But others were determined not to let this attack disrupt their life. We kind of never surrendered in spirit. We never wanted to allow that the conditions that were imposed on us break us down. And we tried at every possible moment to make the life as normal as possible. So in the pauses of the shelling and grenades, we would be going and 
visiting families. We would play games, you know, board games and stuff like that. The attack kept getting worse, and so it was impossible to get away from the artillery shelling, which was now targeting streets and houses. Here is only one of the several memories of the shelling that Yasmin remembers. In one occasion, me and my mother decided to go and help my grandmother clean her room. We were uh, dusting covers and bed sheets and stuff, and I had a piece of a uh, small carpet. Went out to the balcony and wanted to dust it off. The moment I did the first flap of it, a grenade fell behind our house, and the detonation kind of glued me onto a wall, holding this piece of carpet, which immediately at that moment felt like I was holding a a sheet of steel in my hands, and my feet felt like I was wearing concrete. Shoes. I couldn't move. I was I was frozen in in the moment. It's it's hard to describe. It's it's like the fabric of the reality is being split apart. So it was a terrifying experience. All the senses in my body would would kind of go numb for a moment, and. The only thing I could do was blink with my eyes and and try to gather around where I am. Over the first few days of the attack, the Bosnian Serbs shot hundreds of artillery shells and grenades at the town. On the second and third day of the attack, the seventh and eighth of July, Kada Hotic, superstitious as she is. Would have maybe said that the weather was giving the Bosniaks another sinister sign, because all day on the seventh there was heavy rain pouring over the enclave, which in the hot Bosnian summer turned into a thick, low-lying mist. And next day on the eighth, this slowed the Bosnian Serbs down. But as soon as the mist lifted, they continued shelling both Srebrenica and the UN base in Potocari, which is a village just north of Srebrenica. At that point, the focus of the Bosnian Serb army was just on squeezing the enclave, on making it smaller, and so they wanted to take over the observation posts that the Dutch UN soldiers held around the edges of the safe area, and they succeeded. On the 8th of July, the Bosnian Serb soldiers took advantage of the UN's smoking gun mandate, surrounded one of their observation posts, outnumbering the Dutch soldiers, and took it over without firing a single shot. The Bosnian Serb army was now inside the Srebrenica safe area. Colonel Karamans, the Dutch UN commander, made another request for air support after losing the observation post. His request was denied. Once again, there are conflicting reports on why, but one suggests that Karamans did not make his request using proper documentation—a bureaucratic mistake. Kada remembers how hopeless these days felt. While she says these first days of the attack all blend into one, she remembers that on one of them she was heading to her brother's house while UN planes were still dropping humanitarian aid from above. During that time, planes threw powdered milk, among other things, bags of powdered milk. On the way to my brother's house, 
I stepped over one of the bags. It was no longer needed. I felt neither hunger nor need. And you know how much powdered milk meant to us when milk was nowhere to be found. For two or three days, I was simply disoriented and I didn't feel hunger at all. I don't know if I prepared any food. I probably did, but I can't remember that I felt any need to eat. The constant shelling had a mental toll on those in the town, but it also killed and wounded dozens of people. It became impossible to take care of those who were hit. The biggest curse one can experience is being in a need of a hospital in Srebrenica. There was no medicine, there was no medical equipment, there was literally nothing. And at the time when the shelling came and when all these wounded people needed a medical attendance, the limb amputation had happened without anesthetics. And before the shelling and everything, as we were passing by the hospital, this building was somehow the most dreaded building in the whole of Srebrenica. It was always surrounded by dirty gauzes being, you know, washed and reused. The closest I came to the building was when I was exploring Srebrenica. And I heard moans and screams from within the building which frightened me so much that I never wanted to ever get close to that building. The day after they first took over a UN observation post, the Bosnian Serb soldiers used the same tactic again to take over even more posts. They were gaining a real foothold inside the enclave, while also now taking the Dutch soldiers from these posts as hostages. It should also be pointed out that the Dutch soldiers were given the choice of either going back inside Srebrenica or being taken away by the Bosnian Serbs. All of them chose to become hostages rather than to go back into the town. And by the end of the 9th of July, 30 Dutch soldiers had been captured. The Bosniaks in Srebrenica didn't know this at the time, but they sensed that the UN was losing ground. Here's Kada. We were terribly angry. They didn't tell us anything. Vehicles were speeding through Srebrenica. It seemed to me that they would trample someone. Srebrenica is full of people. There were always crowds of people on the street. They were speeding in their vehicles, running away to the base. And then we understood they didn't want us, that they would leave us. The hostage situation now also meant that, unless absolutely necessary, air support was not an option. The protection of the Dutch UN hostages became a priority, and the UN were afraid of the Bosnian Serbs retaliating. And the 9th of July saw the arrival of a figure so pivotal to the story of Srebrenica that his is the one name in this story that you will likely recognize. It was on this day that the general of the army of Republika Srpska, Ratko Mladic, took over control of the Srebrenica operation from a nearby command centre. Like Karamans, Mladic was also a career soldier. 
he rose up through the ranks of the old Yugoslav People's Army, and in 1992, he was appointed the chief of the Army of Republika Srpska. He was actually one of the main architects of the Siege of Sarajevo, which is where I fled from when I was four, and which started the Bosnian War. He was said to inspire a frenzied devotion among his soldiers. In Sarajevo, he reportedly commanded to his soldiers to shell them until they're on the edge of madness. And on that day, on the 9th of July, when Mladic takes over the attack, the president of Republika Srpska, Karadzic, actually gives the go-ahead for a change of plan. Rather than just squeezing the enclave, Mladic was now free to conquer it. They had not expected the UN to put up so little resistance. With the UN not engaging, the only people left to defend Srebrenica were the Bosniaks themselves. This is where the demilitarization agreement of 1993, mentioned in episode one, becomes important. How did that demilitarization, what did that mean for the defendability of Srebrenica? Well, it, it, meant, it, meant, it, meant, it meant there was no defense of Srebrenica. I mean, it meant that the, the only thing standing between the enclave and and Radko Mladic was the few hundred Dutch soldiers. Um, and that was it. In Srebrenica, you did not have soldiers. You had kind of warriors, uh, young boys turning fighters overnight and fighting with what they could find and improvised guns and stuff like that. The Bosnian Serbs had Srebrenica between a rock and a hard place. The Bosniaks were legally not allowed to fight the Bosnian Serbs because of the demilitarization treaty that the UN themselves negotiated with Republika Srpska. Any sign of the Bosnian Muslims defending their own lives could be presented by the Bosnian Serbs as a legitimate reason for killing them. And so the next day, on the 10th of July, the Bosnian Serb army pushes ahead only this time with a new objective, taking over Srebrenica. Of course, they still made sure not to directly attack the UN so that their soldiers can't engage. Do you think people could tell that the Serbs were getting kind of closer and closer? Yes, 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 yes. The common people understood that from bombshells coming every day closer and closer to the nucleus of the town. As the bombshells were dropped on the city, among the civilians, we understood it was an end. Two different air support requests made by Colonel Karamans because of the Bosnian Serbs' advance were rejected by the UN on the 10th of July. The first one, because the Bosnian Serbs stopped advancing until the planes ran out of fuel and had to return to base knowing that the UN wouldn't attack them. And the second request was rejected because once the planes were refuelled and available again and the Bosnian Serbs restarted their advance, it got too dark. After that last rejection, however, Colonel Karaman's superior, after negotiating with Mladic himself, promised Karaman's, firmly promised, that the next morning at 6am, NATO planes would stop the Bosnian Serbs once and for all. And late that night, at midnight actually, Colonel Karamans met with some of the Bosniak leaders inside a gymnasium in Srebrenica, a makeshift crisis war council. 
With the tensions running high and the dire situation all too obvious to everyone there, Caramans promised them, just as firmly as his commander promised him, that they did not need to worry. That early next morning, the Bosnian Serb forces would be stopped with airstrikes. They believed him and awaited the next day, when the nightmare that they had been living inside for years was meant to finally be over. The promise was never kept, however. I felt tricked when Srebrenica fell. It was then that I realised that the UN was a farce. More on that after a quick break. The morning of 11th of July dawned. 6am rolled around and the Dutch soldiers were in their positions, waiting. It was now that the UN planes were meant to come roaring in. One of the UN personnel described the enclave that morning as unusually, but creepily, calm and quiet. They said, quote, The usual hail of shells that have been greeting our mornings is surprisingly absent today. We view this as a positive change in the current circumstances, which undoubtedly have come from the ultimatum, even though it has not been implemented yet. We hope things remain as it is now, until a peaceful solution to this problem is reached. We are presently doing fine, but remaining in our bunkers. The airstrike is supposed to take place in the next quarter of an hour. The airstrike, however, did not take place, and a peaceful solution would not be reached. It was misty again that morning, which at first seemed as the reason for the delay of the airstrike. But as time went on, it became clear. Air support wasn't coming. Now, once again, there is no one agreed upon account of why the planes did not come. But as soon as the mist lifted at around 8am, the Bosnian Serbs started advancing again. And so, Colonel Karamans made another request for air support, over the phone. You may wonder why we're going into so much detail about air support requests, but this is one of the main breaking points in the story. This bureaucratic back and forth would end up changing everything. So at 8am, Karamans requested air support over the phone but he was told it needed to be done on a paper form. So a form was filled out, but it got returned because it was the wrong form. Once the right form was submitted and its receipt confirmed by the UN command, Caramans was told that air support could arrive within 45 minutes. In his view, it was job done. But this paperwork ordeal just kept going. At 9.45am, almost two hours after the first request was made, it was denied. Apparently because neither the town nor the soldiers were under direct threat. And the misunderstanding this time? Command said that air support could arrive in 45 minutes, not that it would. Then at 10am, another request was made because the Bosnian Serbs just kept advancing. But it was the same thing again. Caramans did it over the phone, he got told to submit a paper form, and by the time the airstrike could be approved, the planes that were in the area had to go back to their base to refuel. 
It would be hours before they'd be available again. Inside Srebrenica, the panic started ramping up. The Bosnian Serbs were getting closer. And since the night before, people had started to realize that this may be it. To Kada, it was clear because of yet another premonition. On the eve of July 11th, I didn't sleep all night. My son improvised lights in the house. He was an electrical technician by trade. On the stream, he built a mini power plant where he produced some electricity that we lit our home with. We had lights in five apartments. That evening was quiet. There was no rain, there was no wind to disturb that electricity maker, and the light went out, turned off. And I then went upstairs to one of my neighbours and asked, Sabra, Sabra she was called, is the light working at your place? Mine's gone out. She says yes. Look, I said, if you have the flour, let's knead some bread so we have it for when we leave. She says, what's the matter with you? I said, you know what, Sabra? All my lights went out. The ones that Samir made. Lives are being extinguished. Come, you fool, she says. Stop fooling around. I'm telling you, I said, this does not bode well. And that's when us three families baked bread at Sabra's. And I took that bread with me the next day to Botticari. Botticari is where the UN base just outside Srebrenica was. That's where everyone headed once it became clear that they couldn't stay in their houses. It was the very last place they could think of where they would be safe. Here's Kadifer remembering the morning of the 11th of July. That morning we heard people were fleeing. People who were near the attacks on the town were urging us to flee as the Serbs were beginning to take Srebrenica. We had no idea what to do or where to go. We still had some hope our soldiers would defend the town somehow, but the Serbs managed to get in. Families began leaving their homes in the early morning, but it was later in the day when any hope of a fight being put up by the UN had evaporated that people streamed towards the UN base in floods. At around noon, we had to leave our flat and go to the UN base in Potocari, hoping that they would be able to save us. We hoped we wouldn't be killed there. I left together with my son, my husband, my brother Ekrem and his wife, and their two daughters. Four grenades fell into a crowd of people, into a line of people rushing towards Potocari. When I saw dismembered bodies, and a UN vehicle collecting the wounded, I saw that our death had come for us. Mladic's men were now directly shelling the centre of Srebrenica, filled with thousands of people. My house was on an incline above the street, and all I could see on the street was a river of human heads. So many people was there that you couldn't see the rest of the body. It was just heads flowing down the street. Like so many times before, Yasmin's family quickly packed up what they could of their life 
and joined the other refugees to seek UN protection. But there were two UN bases in Srebrenica. One, like I mentioned, was just north of the town, in Potocari. The other one was smaller and right in the centre of town. This is where both Yasmin's family and thousands of others headed first. People kind of wanted to break into this first military base. Now, the world remembers this scene. If you can recall a scene where women are breaking through the barbed wire. My father decided to go with other men through the forest. He kind of expected that he might have a better chances if he fled through the forest uh, than if he stayed with us. At one time, I just realized that my father was not there. Yasmin's dad joined a group of thousands of other men who also thought that fleeing Srebrenica would be safer than hoping the Bosnian Serbs would be merciful. But they thought that the women and children would be spared. So at this UN base inside of Srebrenica, Yasmin was left alone with his mum and grandmother. Then a grenade fell among those people. I remember glass window, probably the last glass window in Srebrenica, which was saved somehow. It came falling down on top of me, my mother and my grandmother. My mother fell on top of me, then my grandmother on top of two of us, kind of sheltering me from the shards. And I remember thinking in all darkness beneath the two bodies, thinking for myself, where the hell did this glass come from? So, when this grenade fell, it was an utter panic among people. And somewhere on the street, my father rejoined us. I remember him saying to my mother, I, uh, when I heard the grenade, I just decided I will come back and I don't want to leave you anymore. So with the stampedo of people, my father and me split from my mother and my grandmother. And I was alone with my father, uh, sheltered in some sort of improvised garage for the UN cars, which was a, a very thin tin barrack. Another grenade fell, then shooting came. I remember seeing holes and ribbons of light appearing up in this tin object. My father realized again that we just have to flee away, we have to run away. Then he noticed that beneath the base, UN soldiers were prepping up their trucks, the white trucks, trying to run away from the people and from this first military base. When he noticed this, we ran towards these white trucks and he took me like a sack of potatoes and just threw me over on one of those trucks, climbed up after me, opened one of those sides for other peoples to climb up. And the world knows these trucks swarming with people all over. We came to the military base in Potocari on this truck. And as we stepped down, we went into this hall. My father passed next to Gurney. It was a military gurney, which he kind of just picked up 
and put me to sit on it in one corner of this hole. As I sat on that, I felt something like sticky on it. When I put my hand up, it was all blood. Uh, the gurney was all covered in blood. So we sat there, you know, aimless, frightened people were coming in and with the lack of lightning the, the faces of people became more frightening, more lifeless. Children, women, elderly people, they were all lifeless as, as if all the joy had went out of from their faces. Meanwhile, Kada was also on her way to the main UN base at Potuchari, together with her son and husband. There were thousands of families doing the same. The sound of shelling and grenades all around them, everything hurried and chaotic. It was in this commotion that my son Samir left. Nearby was a petrol station and a road that turns toward the countryside and the woods. A group of younger lads headed into the woods. It was such chaos that I had no time to say goodbye to my son. It wasn't until he set off, some 10 meters away, that I called out to him. Samir! He turned, taller by a lot than the boys with him. I said, good luck, son. That image is the last memory, the last time I saw my child. Never again. This nearby petrol station that Kada mentioned is where Kadifa was with her family as well. Like Kada and her son, she was saying goodbye to her husband. They were both walking through the woods to the nearest safe city, Tuzla. As my husband and I were about to part ways at the petrol station, he hugged me tight and said, take care of our children. That was the last time I ever saw him. I then headed towards Potachari. On that walk, I was carrying my son Dino in my hands, and my daughter was holding on to me. All of a sudden, I slipped and Dino fell out of my hands. I thought he was dead. And as I had fallen, I had knocked my daughter over too. My mother was able to find some water, but even then, he was showing no signs of life. We had nearly arrived in Potichari, and I could no longer hear the heavy shelling and gunfire, because all I could focus on was whether my son was alive. And thank God, he was alive. And so like that, we arrived at Potichari, despite all the shelling and gunfire. All the way to Potichari, some five kilometers away, we were followed by grenades. 
although not on the road where people were walking, but around the road. Most likely because the UN soldiers were there, otherwise they would have killed us all. I came to the base there, and I couldn't enter the base itself, but there were other factories nearby. We sat there, and I remember there was a crane. Under that crane the sun was scorching. We sat and waited for what was to come next. When both Kada and Kadifa got to the base, they realised it was already packed with refugees. The soldiers wouldn't let them in, and so they waited at one of the factories near the base. Sitting there and watching what was going on, it was an overwhelming scene. There were lots of women and children crying. Nobody knew what was going on. They were promising us nothing would happen. People were distressed. Children were screaming. People were running around aimlessly, knowing neither where to go nor what for. An interpreter working for the UN circled, strolled, and walked among the crowd calming us, not to panic, that we would be protected, all of us that were there at the base. They set up barbed wire around those factories and the factory space outside. Because the base was full, like Kader and Kadifer, Yasmin's mum also couldn't get inside. He was still in there with just his dad, a little boy realising that his mother is missing. The worry that jolted into my heart was, where is my mother? I was afraid that I might have lost her. Sometime afterwards, I noticed my mother coming through the opening in the wall. And I remembered that everything went white. I just saw my mother and everything around us was white. I was settled. My mom is with us. And when she found us, the first thing that she told us was that a UN soldier was preventing her to get into the factory to find us. She was trying to explain to him that she saw us coming into this factory and she needed to rejoin us, that her child was there, but he didn't understand and he was pushing her with his gun and, and you know, pushing her away from the factory. Then she kind of circumvent him and found a fence being torn in one corner of the factory, squeezed through that and came to us. The base and the surrounding factories were filled up with tens of thousands of terrified Bosniaks. But the Bosnian Serbs' attack on Srebrenica didn't stop. All throughout the afternoon they kept getting closer. The Dutch UN soldiers still had not directly fought the Bosnian Serbs, and their last bit of resistance was the air support. Two airstrikes, to be exact, almost five hours after Colonel Karamans had requested them at 10am. And their impact was, well, here is Emir again. And at one point only two F-16s showed up and dropped their bombs in the middle of nowhere, uh, inflicting no damage whatsoever to the Bosnian Serb military, and then flying back. That was at 2.42pm. By 3pm, all of the Dutch soldiers were at their base along with the refugees. Srebrenica was empty and there for Ratko Mladic to take it. 
At quarter past four, Ratko Mladic himself walked into the centre of Srebrenica, congratulating his lieutenants on their victory. There is actual video footage of this. He's standing there, looking around at the empty, desolate Srebrenica, smiling and shaking hands with his soldiers, kissing each one of them on the cheeks three times. He instructs his men to take down the Muslim flag, and one of them with a smile on his face does away with it. Mladic then urges them, go straight to Potocari and Bratunac, go on ahead of me, don't stop. And then he stands facing the camera, looking straight down the lens and says, Here we are on the 11th of July 1995 in Serb Srebrenica. On the eve of yet another Serb holiday, we give this town to the Serb people as a gift. Finally, after the rebellion against the Dahis, the time has come to take revenge on the Turks in this region. It was a victory speech. Srebrenica had fallen. In the early evening at around 5pm, Bosnian Serb soldiers arrived at the UN base in Potocari, surrounding it. There were tens of thousands of Bosniaks on top of each other, protected by a few hundred UN soldiers. At 8pm, Ratko Mladic summoned Colonel Karamans to a meeting. The purpose of it is not clear, but it is safe to assume that it was a show of force by Ratko Mladic. He now dominated the situation completely. Karamans didn't really have a choice and accepted Mladic's quote-unquote invitation. Amazingly, there is full footage of this meeting. It seems that Ratko Mladic was trying to rewrite history as it was unfolding. At the meeting, Mladic and two of his men are standing in a tight semicircle opposite Colonel Karamans. The room is dark. Karamans looks tired, drawn in and skinny, while Mladic has an imposing stance, despite being a bit shorter. Mladic is yelling at Karamans that his soldiers were attacked. Karamans refuses. Mladic then accuses Karamans of breaking the demilitarization agreement from 1993, of arming the Bosniaks to fight against the Serbs. Mladic then changes tack suddenly, as if playing both good cop and bad cop all by himself, and he offers Karamans a cigarette. Karamans reluctantly agrees. He seems so uncomfortable. Mladic keeps being nice and says, almost like he's trying to guilt trip Karamans, that he himself was shot at by the Dutch soldiers. For which Karamans meekly apologises, despite knowing it's not true. Mladic then ends the conversation by saying, from here you can all leave or all stay and all die.
Остате сви. Then the video cuts to everyone having a drink of rakia and clinking glasses. Mladic is joking around with his men and Karaman seems intimidated. Mladic's point was proven. Just a few hours later at 11 p.m., Mladic calls for another meeting, but this time requests a Bosniak representative to attend as well. Remember, thousands of the men had left through the forest earlier, and so they picked one of the remaining men at random. He was called Nesip Mandic, and he was just a school teacher. Now being told by Ratko Mladic that the future of his people lay in his hands. Nesib doesn't know what to say, other than stressing that he's not an official, he's just a school teacher. Meanwhile, that night, all the Bosniaks were still in Potichari, some sleeping inside the base, some huddled outside during the hot night. Yasmin was there with his parents, Kadifa with her kids and mother, and Kada with her husband and her brother's family. That night was awful. The UN had basically retreated that night. I was seeing babies being taken away from their mothers. I could hear screaming. The noise was unbearable. And you couldn't believe it was coming from humans. I was having a nervous breakdown. It was horrific. They were dreading what was to come. And what came over the next few days was the so-called revenge that Radko Mladic spoke about when he conquered Srebrenica. That's next week on Untold Killing. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written, produced and edited by Jake Atayevic. Kate Williams is the producer for Remembering Srebrenica. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. Our consultant producer is Nadan Hadzic. A huge thank you goes to Elmina Kulisic for consulting on the show and for working closely with survivors. And of course, also to the women who provided English voices for Kada and Kadifa, Kim Sadiq and Abby Carter. Theme music is by Matt Huxley. If you'd like to see the video footage that we mentioned in this episode or read accounts of more Srebrenica survivors, go to srebrenica.org.uk forward slash podcast. My name is Alexandra Bilic. Untold Killing will be back next week on Thursday. <laughs>